And one of the most challenging things is that in counseling clients, many times it is not in their interest, consistent with their goals to report. And while that's satisfying because we're being good counsel, we now know that there is a crime being committed somewhere in the United States that we can't do anything about. Corporate fraud works best in the shadows, behind corporate walls. How does the government bring these wrongdoers to justice? Whistleblowers. These are the stories of those who risk their careers to shine a light on allegations of fraud. Today on Fraud in America. On today's episode of Fraud in America, we are going to take a close look at the Securities Exchange Commission's whistleblower program. As we discussed on previous episodes, for many, many years, there really was nowhere for people to turn when they uncovered problems in the financial markets. Well, this all changed in the wake of the Madoff scandal when Congress enacted the Dodd-Frank Act, which put in place the SEC whistleblower program. Today, we're going to be joined by three people that know this program very, very well. They include Sean McKessie of the whistleblower law firm Phillips & Cohen. He was the first chief of the SEC whistleblower office, where he put in place many of the procedures and policies that have led to that office and the SEC whistleblower program having unprecedented success in uncovering fraud schemes. We're also going to be joined by Jordan Thomas of Labaton Succoro. He was one of the principal architects of the SEC whistleblower program. Uh, at the SEC, he was an assistant director. He was also an assistant chief litigation counsel in the Division of Enforcement. Also, he had spent time as a trial attorney at the Department of Justice. Uh, we're also joined by Jason Zuckerman of Zuckerman Law. Uh, he is the chair of Taxpayers Against Fraud's SEC Working Group. His practice is devoted to SEC CFT whistleblower retaliation cases uh, representing whistleblowers under a variety of things. Its main focus uh, in recent years focuses on financial fraud cases, uh, principally brought under the SEC whistleblower program. So those three individuals are joining us today to walk us through why this program has been so successful in encouraging people to step forward to highlight fraud allegations. All of that happens today on this episode of fraud in America. Jason, Jordan, Sean, I really appreciate you guys joining me for uh, this episode of Fraud in America. I've known all three of you for a long time uh, in different roles, different capacities, but this is uh, perhaps my favorite as guest on Fraud in America. Um, this is such an interesting topic right now. Just last episode, we talked to uh, the Enron whistleblower, Cheryl Watkins, and this is the 20th anniversary in which she stepped forward and raised concerns internally about what was happening at Enron. So I want to talk to each of you guys. I'm going to start with you, Jordan. You know, your background, uh, initially Navy uh, JAG Corps, then over uh, DOJ uh, trial attorney, and then worked your way over to SEC. Such an interesting background. Um, and as we look back over uh, this you know, last 20 years, what strikes you as kind of the evolution of this? Why are we? Why did this whole SEC whistleblower program launch to begin with? I thought this was solved with Sarbanes-Oxley 20 years ago. 
Well, there's no question that Sarbanes-Oxley was, was a positive development, but unfortunately it didn't go far enough. Um, and um, I, I think that the kind of the advent of the SEC whistleblower program really starts when the Madoff scandal and the financial crisis. Um, at that time, people were, uh, their confidence in the commission was shaken. Mary Shapiro, the chairman, uh, when she was going through her confirmation hearings, was asked, what's the future of the SEC? Should we be combining with another agency? You know, how, how are we going to avoid the problems of the past? And one of the things that she said was, uh, we'd like to uh, evaluate the potential of a SEC whistleblower program. And that was one of her first uh, priorities, one of the first rules that came out. And the idea was uh, to incentivize people to come forward who otherwise would have remained silent. And the program did it in three different ways. Uh, the ability to report anonymously, uh, enhanced employment protections, and the potential for monetary awards. And uh, I'm sure Sean will have an opportunity to talk about it, but uh, when he led the office, uh, they started a run that's been unparalleled uh, in, a, in kind of whistleblower program history. That's a great segue over to, over to you, Sean. You as the first chief of the SEC Office of the Whistleblower, you were kind of uh, on the forefront in getting the whistleblower program going. Can you talk about those early days? Sure. So, um, and just taking a step back, the, the segue from Enron is an excellent one because, as you mentioned, it bred the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which in a lot of ways was an attempt to avoid the next Enron WorldCom by empowering or requiring companies to have internal reporting systems. And the idea, I think, in Sarbanes-Oxley was if we give companies the tools and employees the tools to report, then these things wouldn't happen again. And what we learned is that in, in, in the wake of the financial crisis and Madoff, et cetera, that that wasn't working. And so uh, Dodd-Frank has passed and creates the Office of the Whistleblower, which created my job. Um, and, uh, you know, the early days were interesting, right? I mean, uh, as Jordan mentioned, there are three components of the, of the program. Uh, confidentiality slash anonymity is one. Uh, then there's the ability to get paid. And then there's the anti-retaliation protections. And my job kind of unfolded through those three things. And so the first thing I, I felt was important to um, make sure that the, the staff was aware of was their obligations for confidentiality. Um, one of the aspects of Dodd-Frank is that for anything that could directly or indirectly identify a whistleblower could not be shared outside of the building, and that includes with fellow regulators. And so one of the interesting stories right off the bat is my first day, there was an FBI uh, detailee in the SEC, and I had to ask that he leave the building until I figured out what to do with the fact that he works for the FBI and we're not supposed to share anything that identifies a whistleblower um, one way or the other. And, uh, and we came up with a, a, a strategy to deal with that. But, you know, I, I was very clear, I think, early on, the first time that a whistleblower's identity was leaked, that the program would fall. And so I spent a lot of my very, my first six to eight months was just visiting uh, enforcement staff around, uh, across the country, making sure that they understood and were really laser focused on the, the importance of, of confidentiality. Once I felt good about that, then I had to answer all the questions from the nice people in the public. How come you haven't paid anybody yet, Sean? How come, you know, you keep saying the program is great and it's it's doing all kinds of great things, but you haven't paid anybody. So um, we focused on getting uh, payments out the door as quickly as we could. 
And I'm proud to say within one year and two weeks after the rules went effective, we made our first payment to a whistleblower. Uh, of course, that's one question of how come it was so small and how come you can't pay people more. But that kind of continued on. Um, and I, I'm, I'm proud of what we were able to accomplish in setting up the program and getting those payments out the door as quickly as possible. And then having done that and set up the, the, the all of the infrastructure necessary to process claims, you know, one of the questions what I first had when I walked in the door is, where's the checking account? Do I write the checks when we pay somebody or how do we do that? So we had to put in the structures to, you know, request uh, from the Department of Treasury that they disperse the funds to successful whistleblowers, those kinds of mechanics. It seems obvious now, but when we walked in the door, honestly, a blank piece of paper was all we had in terms of infrastructure. So, but once I felt comfortable that we're doing that and that we kind of routinized getting payments out the door, and, and one of the things that's gratifying is first payment, you get a million articles, a lot of questions about how come it's not more. Second payment, you get half a million articles. Third payment, maybe less. And then I felt like we were really hitting our mark when, when we would make payouts and it would get relatively little media coverage, although it's very helpful for the program to have that kind of coverage. But once I felt comfortable about that, then we turned to anti-retaliation. And I, I spent a lot of my last year or so focused on what I call pre-taliation, you know, agreements, uh, severance agreements, um, employment agreements that would effectively uh, contract out people from reporting to the SEC and uh, 21 f 17 uh, a, as everyone knows, is uh, the, the provision. And uh, uh, although no cases were brought under that while I was there, almost immediately after I left, the SEC brought a series of cases that I think have really fortified the program by letting companies know you can't contract people out from reporting to the SEC um, by requiring them to report to you first. Um, in, in some instances, a severance agreement would specifically say, you agree in taking this money that you're not going to report to the SEC under the whistleblower program. And one of the more egregious um, violations of, of, the, of the section. And then in addition to that, we also, I thought it was very important to, for the SEC to actually exercise its retaliation authority. Um, and so laid the groundwork for that. And, and right after I left, the SEC brought its first retaliation case and it's since brought cases, even where the underlying conduct, it turned out, was not a violation. Uh, the SEC has punished companies just for the fact that they, reta they retaliated against somebody who reported in good faith. And so, you know, it, it was a, a fascinating ride for five and a half years to uh, build a program and, and make sure that each one of those three crucial aspects of the program were respected. And I think only because we were able, my team was able to do that, um, have we seen the success continue. Uh, kudos to Jane Norberg, who took over for me, and now Emily Pasquinelli, who's the interim head. Um, program is in, in good shape and, and hopefully only going to get better. Yeah, certainly, you know, as you think about the different public-private uh, partnerships that fall under law enforcement, uh, this is a program that certainly is marked as perhaps the most successful, certainly over the last 10 years. Um, Jason, for, for a long time, uh, you've built a, a great reputation as an employment uh, attorney in, in bringing uh, several Sarbanes-Oxley whistleblower uh, retaliation cases. Uh, you're certainly someone I turn to on, on, on that front beyond just employment. Um, what were some of your initial thoughts as this program started getting off the ground in 2010, 2011? Well, I was very, very excited. And let me say, I brought a lot of cases under SOX. Mm -hmm. It's a good law. But all you basically get, you know, is your lost pay and your put back in the place that you would have been after having to fight it very hard. Is that going to be enough? 
to get people to put their neck on the line. If they're going through years of an ugly lawsuit, just maybe to get their job back or to get lost wages. No, it's not. When we want people to put their jobs on the line and speak up, and we know if you work at a Wall Street bank, for example, and you blow the whistle, you might not be able to work again. You might get blacklisted. So this program has been so key. And as we've heard from everyone so far, it has worked as a result of the information provided by various whistleblowers. The SEC has recovered about $3.5 billion. So far, it's had to pay out close to about $1 billion to about 190 people. I have to check if that's up to date. But this is a program uh, that's worked. Something that happened to me is when I brought claims um, under the anti-retaliation provision of Sarbanes-Oxy Act, sometimes the employer would sue the hell out of me uh, and, and my client. I'm really happy to say that as a result of the Dodd-Frank Act and, and the hard work of the SEC, they don't do that anymore. These cases are about whether or not people can provide inside information to the SEC that gives the SEC a major leg up when they go after these various schemes. And the SEC has done a great job with its anti-gag rule. That would be a huge, huge obstacle for my clients to speak up. And what the SEC has done is made it clear, you can speak up. Even if you have an NDA, you can always provide information to the SEC. Now, I, I won't go into it now, but if you're planning to blow the whistle, get advice out of the works. There's certain things you don't want to give to anyone else. You don't want to go to the media. There's certain things you don't even want to give over to the SEC because it can actually be more harmful than, than helpful. So, you know, that has had a huge impact, not only in this area, but I think really under all of the whistleblower laws that our clients can provide in a lawful manner clear evidence of unlawful conduct over the government. And it's much, much harder now for employers to bring claims against our clients. And that has just had a huge, huge impact um, in this area. You know, in listening to Sean and uh, Jason, um, a couple of things come to mind um, that might be interesting to uh, your listeners. Um, one is, uh, well, you, you Sean and I both talked about our roles and kind of helping to develop the program. Um, you know, Jason actually was uh, one of the one of the uh, prominent whistleblowers who actually came to the commission and gave input on how the program should be shaped. And personally, he had an incredible role in my uh, life because near the end of my time at the commission, I went to him and said, "You know, uh, I'm thinking about leaving the commission, uh, and I think the whistleblower works really compelling." What do you think? And uh, Jason was one of the people that encouraged me. Um, and on another note, um, you know, uh, Sean was talking about the the um, retaliation um, uh, commitment of the commission. And I remember distinctly, and I'm sure Sean probably does too, sitting in a large conference room with a number of SEC people, and Sean kind of talking with my client about, "Tell us about what happened." Uh, and ultimately, that became the first SEC whistleblower case. And that wasn't an easy thing to kind of get the commission to start thinking about things that weren't traditional securities violations. Um, and my last thought that I th that may be interesting, and maybe the, the other uh, council can weigh in on, is Jason talked about the, the dynamic of the David and Goliath pre-SEC whistleblower program. So you file and, and they come after you. Well, 
once the SEC whistleblower program was established and, and Sean pushed that aspect of it, then what happened was um, a, a whistleblower could go to the SEC and talk to them about retaliation. And then the SEC began investigating it from a securities violation perspective. And so you were no longer were just David against Goliath. You had a bigger Goliath side by side with you. And um, one of the things that uh, I, I'll, I'll remember kind of forever is that the, the first whistleblower who's, who's, who the commission brought a case against their employer, um, you know, Sean or uh, his people kind of gave out the award or, and it was a maximum award, which was satisfying. And you know what he said? He said that the thing that meant the most to him was that the world knew that they did him wrong. Yeah. So that idea of kind of um, uh, validation, the idea of uh, kind of being able to be known uh, as the doing the right thing is priceless. And it only happens or often only happens when the SEC joins the fight because the, the settlements are always public and many of the employment cases are not. They are uh, handled in kind of uh, uh, administrative proceedings where the world doesn't hear about it. You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, and for those who didn't watch the last episode, I encourage you to go back and uh, watch the interview we did with the Enron whistleblower, Cheryl Watkins. She talked about how if uh, her experiences happened today, um, Enron wouldn't have happened because she would have felt empowered and protected uh, from retaliation to step forward earlier, uh, that this would have what the initial fraud scheme that eventually metastasized into becoming what brought down Enron happened 10 years prior, um, but she didn't feel protected enough to step forward at that point. She would have been able to step forward and, and highlight a, a much smaller fraud, but it would have alerted Enron that you can't do what you're planning on doing going forward. Sean, I, I'm going to go to you on this point. Wearing your old hat uh, from the SEC, what are some of the things that you would have looked for when it came to you know somebody coming into the door? Sure. So just to piggyback off of some of the conversation before I get to that point, thinking back on, you know, the challenges uh, of marketing the program uh, were twofold. And, and I don't know that I knew or understood that as I came in. Uh, the first was public facing. And um, I think I was one of the first non-commissioner to get a, a video on the website where I wanted to make clear that we're open for business and whistleblowers are welcome. And uh, I think that had a lot of uh, skepticism at first. So I thought that was really, really important to make sure that people knew that there was a face behind this program. There's people who are running this program and that you are indeed welcome. Uh, the second fold aspect of it was marketing the program internally. And what do I mean by that is, you know, basically retraining enforcement staff to rethink the way they think about whistleblowers, whistleblowing, counsel for whistleblowers. Um, making sure that they understood that these people are assets, you know, so don't worry about why they're coming forward, focus on the information. And if it's good information, use it. Don't worry about who's going to get paid, how much they're going to get paid. That's going to be my job. So it was, it was interesting, you know, in the, in the wake of what you said about Enron, you know, to have, you know, this conversation that we're still having today about, you know, is, does it make sense to pay people for quote unquote, doing the right thing? I can tell you for sure that there are companies in existence today that would have gone the Enron route had not a whistleblower come forward and stopped a fraud that would have completely undone the company. I know that for sure because I paid that person uh, and those people. So I, I hope that we can put aside this idea that 
there's something nefarious about paying people uh, to do the right thing because it's a hard thing to do. And history shows that opportunities have been lost because people didn't feel like they could be compensated and also be protected from retaliation. Um, going back to your question, you know, I, I remember answering this question as the head of the office. What are we looking for? What are we looking for in terms of tips and, and people? And I, you know, I remember talking to my staff, like if we, if we could put out bumper stickers, we would want specific, timely, incredible. That's the three things we're looking for. We want information that's specific, you know, not a vague, you know, I think my boss is doing something crooked. Um, it has to be timely. You know, the, the SEC only has so many resources and you could have the best tip about something that happened in 2010. They're not going to act on that. There's statute of limitations issues. There's age issues. And then you want it to be credible. You know, who are you? What do you bring to the table? Why do you know what you know? Um, you know, what positions do you have? What experience do you have? And these are the exact same questions I ask myself now in taking on clients. And, you know, the, the, the one difference that my hat that I now wear is I also have to take the business thing into account. Since we're a contingency firm, I can only get paid if I can get you paid. And you may have the best specific time, the incredible information, but if it's a small fraud that won't get over a million dollars, even though I encourage you to go to the SEC and stop for the good of America, I may have to make the business decision that uh, you're not a client I can take on. And so that's an interesting, that was a very interesting contrast to my prior job when I wanted everyone to report everything and don't worry about whether you're going to get paid because I had my regular hat on. Great points. Uh, and Jason, uh, you, you chair our, uh, the yeah. Taxpayers Against Fraud SEC CFTC working group. Uh, you've helped us in identifying uh, some ways that the program could be improved even further. Uh, if you were n named commissioner of the SEC tomorrow, which is a possibility, who knows? Uh, what changes would you make to the whistleblower program to make it even better? So let me say Well, that. first I'll say he has my vote. If that, ha if that happens, <laughs> he has my vote. Let me say, you know, we can be really proud that the program has worked so well due to the hard work of a lot of people, including people who are on this podcast. But here's what I'd say about the program. We've had the law now about 11 years. It's been able to recover about three and a half billion. I'd say, why only three and a half billion? Why can't it do more? About 40... 2,000 people have gone SEC whistleblower office, about 200 have gotten an award, you know, the SEC needs a lot of resources. So I'd have to be not just the head of the SEC, I'd have to have a lot of influence in, in, in the US Congress and be able to give the SEC a lot more money. But these, these claims are very, very complex. They require a lot of resources to look into. But I think again, while the SEC has done a very good job, but, um, these things just take way too long. They go years and years and years. I, I, I think it'd be helpful to have more people. But I also, the main thing I would alter about this program is that the SEC could work a lot more closely with us and our clients. Our clients and our bar could offer a lot more to the SEC. I've had, I've had some experiences at the SEC where I know the staff well, maybe I've worked with them on some other case and they know who I am and they work with me and my client on an ongoing basis. But way too often, it's been my experience that I go to them, they act on it, they speak with my client. And then a year later, maybe they speak with my client, maybe a few years later. I just feel if we look at the strong public-private partnership uh, between the U.S. Department of Justice and our bar for claims under the False Claims Act. That's just worked so well. And I think the SEC has to look at various opportunities to work 
more closely with us and our clients. For example, the, the other side always has these big firms with an army of lawyers and the SEC is hearing a lot from them. Maybe it would be more helpful for them to go back to us and our clients and get our input when they hear all these arguments from the other side, which may not always be 100% accurate uh, all, all, all the time. So there's a lot that we can do to, to help our clients get a good result at the SEC, but I'd like to see some efforts made at the SEC to work more closely with us and our clients, because I think this program, while it's worked so well, it can do a lot more. Jason, I can't agree with you more on, on, on the points you made. And I, I guess I would comment and it goes to, you know, kind of that twofold thing I was talking about. One of the things that was a challenge was to, to again, market the program internally and to, to make this pitch to enforcement attorneys who have been trained for years. You know, I was one of them. You know, your investigation is yours. It's a black box. You don't tell anybody anything that's going on. You don't communicate. And so, um, and I think it, it, it I, I liken it to turning a cruise ship around. It, it doesn't happen quickly, but I have to say in my experience, both on both sides and with both of my hats, that I have been very encouraged with how some, not all, but some staff have really taken to this idea that, you know, I should use plaintiff's counsel as a, a resource. And it's never going to be key tam. It's never going to be that kind of partnership. But I, I'm pleased with, you know, that, that my message resonated with a number of the staff and I'm benefiting from it now on this side, that staff is really, in some instances, and again, not all, some are just old school and, and it's never going to change, but some are, are willing to just turn over their entire file to me and my, my client to say, can you help us contextualize what we were told by the company? And that is, you know, a sea change from where it was. I agree, though, that it, it, can, it can be improved even more. And on the timeliness issue, I can't agree more. Um, the fact that a, a process, the claims process for an award is taking as long as the underlying investigation is unacceptable. Um, I think Jane made some great uh, changes to accelerate that process. I think we can do more. We should do more. And I would just to put in a pitch for the, the staff, a lot of whom I hired, nobody wants to pay your client more than the, the people in the office of the whistleblower. So if there's any notion that somehow the whistleblower office is not, you know, is, is laying down on the job. I remember, I remember telling, you know, Jordan and, and Erica, my partner, when, when I called to say, we're paying your client, I'm the third happiest person on the planet. Your client's the happiest, you are the second, and I'm third. And, and so this, the staff is working as hard as they can, but I, 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 I echo and I hope that when Jason takes over the SEC, he'll get the resources that the whistleblower office needs to continue their acceleration. And, and by the way, there's no way, other way to describe it, but an explosion of payouts now happening in record, record times, record uh, numbers of people and, and record dollars. And that's all for the good for all of us, I think. Yeah, let me, let me just add, Jeb, really quickly two good points. I would, I would just echo what Sean said. The SEC had this huge, huge backlog of applications for awards. And just what I see from my own clients that, that I've heard about lately who got an award, I can see that a lot of efforts have been made in, 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 in order to deal with that, that huge backlog. The other thing, I just want to go back to, to, to the issue of Enron really quickly and just point something out that I find that's interesting. Because while we've made a lot of progress, I just want to note that if you look at the report of the SEC Office of the Whistleblower from last year, and, and it's this way almost every year, I find this interesting, about 
75% of the people that received an award blew the whistle to their employer before they went to the SEC. So one thing to ask is have these very large companies that have spent all this money to implement these good uh, good um, ethics programs, do they work? And, and there are some that, that work, but it's been my client's experience. And I think that the evidence is there that a lot of corporations just are not adequately responsive to it. Either they completely um, ignore the issue and our clients then hire us and we go to the SEC, or there's a very bad outcome for our clients. They might not be out right then when we blow the whistle, but they get alienated, they get marginalized, and it's clear that it's over for them. So I, I think what we see with all these people who blow the whistle to their employer before they hire us and before they go to the SEC is that a lot of these programs have a long way to go. We're certainly in a far better place than we were on, under what happened at Enron. And by the way, Enron had good programs in place. They had hired some of the best law firms to create these good programs and a good, good, um, good um, anti-retaliation policy. But at the end of the day, that, that program didn't work and it didn't mean much because people at the highest levels were, were, were eager to make a quick buck no matter what they had to do to do it. You know, fraud on the financial markets, uh, I think of all areas of fraud, uh, I think that's perhaps where we need whistleblowers the most, right, to un unravel some of these complex fraud schemes uh, that hide behind numbers. It's hard without that whistleblower. Uh, Jordan, turning to you uh, for a second. So uh, without a doubt, someone is listening or watching today's show who is uh, going to a, a job every single day. They recognize something is wrong, something wrong is happening there, and they're uh, told to look the other way. What would you say to that person? I'd, I'd love to answer that. Can I ask, just have two follow-ons to the prior? Sure, sure. So um, one of the things that I think structurally, um, uh, when you look at the SEC whistleblower program, you first have to look at the SEC enforcement program because there are inherent challenges uh, that the program faces, inadequate resources, uh, a growing mandate, and other things which impacts the enforcement actions they bring, how they bring them, and how fast they bring them. And part of the structural challenges that every chairman and director faces is, do I put a cop on the street or do I put a cop in the whistleblower office? Or take a cop off the street to work in the whistleblower office. And most chairmen are there for four years and they roll. Most directors are there less than four years. And so when facing a choice between putting a, person, a cop on the street and getting a, a, a stat that Congress is going to ask you about, or putting someone in the whistleblower office where the process takes you know five to seven years, people have erred on the side of putting cops on the street. Now, while I understand that from a political kind of um, reputational standpoint, it does a great disservice uh, to cl our clients. And I think that uh, Congress should look for more permanent funding for the whistleblower office that's separate from um, uh, their regular budget so that they, the heads of this office don't have to make these uh, untenable choices. The other uh, thing I will follow on to something Jason said, which is this idea of internal reporting. Um, and um, one of the things that's very clear is that if more organizations uh, listen to the, the people who reported internally, they wouldn't come to us. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I, I think that most organizations are like parents. They, they look at their, their programs and their company and they think they're beautiful, but, in, but they never ask, they never do an independent survey of their people to actually say, are you aware of wrongdoing? You feel comfortable coming forward, that sort of thing. So that's something I think responsible organizations should do more of. Um, and then uh, I guess the question you asked is, someone comes to you, they're aware of the um, aware of wrongdoing and trying to make the difficult choice whether to come forward and how to help them navigate that. Is that the thing that you're interested in exploring? Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We go through a process similar to, I guess, uh, Sean and Jason of looking at one, is there, is there a securities violation? Is it significant? Um, do they have corroboration? And then for, and then for us, we ask the question, um, uh, we joke, it's the guest bedroom rule, which is basically if, if your client was jammed up, would you let them use your guest bedroom uh, for a week or two? Um, because the relationship between whistleblowers and their counsel is, is unique and long-term. By talking through the pros and cons of going forward um, and, the, and looking at past cases, you can get a sense of the potential monetary recovery that they could expect. But in my experience, and I suspect the experience of Jason and Sean, um, the X factor for these clients is, will I be retaliated against? Will I be blacklisted? Will I be able to work? Will I lose my friends or family? And um, those are the tough things that we have to help people sort through. And um, uh, I think Sharon Watkins, because we're talking about Enron, uh, is an excellent example of how the, the collateral consequences of being a whistleblower can sometimes be quite significant. And so we have to help people through that. Fortunately for the SEC whistleblower program, you can report anonymously, which is the best protection against retaliation and blacklisting. Sean, uh, we talked earlier, you brought up this point of marketing or uh, messaging uh, in-house and, and out-house. And one of the struggles that I've been working through since coming back to TAF after 10 years on the KeyTAM side is how best to market the program in which uh, they announce that a whistleblower reward was paid for X amount of money and they don't name who the company is or who the whistleblower is. And it's hard for you know, us as advocates to really market uh, the program. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. So my first thought is um, I did not realize the impact of the announcements until I was on this side. <laughs> Very opaque. <laughs> and I know that there have been awards announced that I worked on. And the announcement is so opaque, I don't even know which one it is. So <laughs> I get it. And I understand the frustration. And I, I would say uh, I've had many whistleblowers and their counsel come to me when I was heading the office uh, for the reasons that Jordan alluded to, asking that I identify them so that they can be vindicated and go to their boss and say, you see, yeah. I was right. The SEC has now vindicated me. And, and, you know, from a process perspective and from a marketing perspective, nothing would have been better for me and for the office sure. to, you know, have a, a big check with somebody and, and have the, the whistleblower <laughs> come forward and say, this was a great experience. But at the end of the day, the statute says that the SEC cannot reveal any information that directly or indirectly identifies a whistleblower. And it doesn't stop at when you get paid. And there's good reasons for that. And I held very firmly to that. And having people, when, when I had whistleblowers or the council come to me and say, can we do a joint press release or some kind of event? I would say, well, I can't do it. And I really advise you not to do it because there's, there's almost no, no good that can come from you being identified as a whistleblower. And now being on this side, 
as, as a firm, of course, we'd like to put out as much information as we can while respecting our, our clients' uh, desire to remain anonymous or confidential throughout the process. But as a, as a practical matter, there was just no way that I could see in the statute that would allow us to say anything that would indirectly identify. And so what that meant was, so picture this, I'm sitting in my office and I finally got my first payout. And so I called the public relations department. And I know that the only way to market this is to get national media coverage that the first payout has been made. And so I called and I said, so look, here's the good news. Uh, tomorrow, the, the, the commission's going to authorize us making our first payment uh, under the whistleblower program. And here's what we can say. We're paying somebody some amount of money somewhere in connection with a certain case, <laughs> but it's the first payout that was made. And as you might imagine, the uh, public relations people were like, you've got to be kidding. We, we've got to be able to say more than that. And I said, no, that, that's exactly what we need to do. And the reason for that was, if we put out more specific information, even about how much we paid, and you reverse engineered, we did it ourselves. We Googled and we figured out who it was within two Google searches. And I felt that that was not appropriate under the statute, that we could not put out information that would indirectly identify whistleblower. So I'm now the victim of my own cautiousness. Um, but I think if people understand the, the context behind it, the statute says you can't directly or indirectly identify a whistleblower. And that means that when you announce an award, you can't say what company it was because then the company will say, ah, I didn't know there was a whistleblower. It must have been so-and-so. And if you put the uh, um, uh, percentage, you can reverse engineer, you know, this had to be within a 10 to 30% range of that. And so we erred on the side of caution. And, and I understand and, and now appreciate how frustrating that can be. But I think it's really important that nobody feels like when they come forward, the SEC is going to be the reason that they get outed. And, and I... I I stand by that. I still think it's, while frustrating, it uh, it accounts for a lot of the success of the program. I, I think that highlights the importance of this show, right? Uh, th highlighting the, the role that whistleblowers have played in so many cases that we know about behind closed doors, but we just simply can't uh, talk about to, uh, the media. It's so important so that people recognize that those, those big numbers Jason was talking about earlier, the $3.5 over the last 11 years – represents people, represents investors who had money stolen for them, represents people stepping forward and, and doing the courageous thing, but we can't talk about it, uh, the specifics. But on the front end, we could talk about uh, what an inspiring role uh, the whistleblower program has played in encouraging other people uh, to step forward. Uh, Jason, I'd I like to go, to go to you with the same question I had for Jordan. I think it's an important one. Some, somebody right now is listening to this, uh, but they're not quite sure if they want to risk their uh, career by stepping forward. What would you say to that person? I mean, every client is unique. Um, you know, I, I think you always want to do the right thing. And if you're at a high enough level, mm -hmm. you want to get over the government before anyone else does, because you wouldn't want to get a call <laughs> um, out yeah. of government when they look at it. So I think there are a lot of reasons it's been in my client's interest, you know, to get ahead of it, blow the whistle. But for certain instances, I'll advise my client to go right to the SEC. It, you know, really depend on a lot of circumstances. For certain clients, though, I would want them to clearly blow the whistle to their employer if it's at a point that it's obvious that it's my client who blew the whistle. And if we believe that there's likely to be an adverse action, I want some evidence that I'll be able to use when I bring a claim of retaliation that will show uh, my client blew the whistle. So what I tell them is just make sure we do our homework. 
we, we need that evidence. We need to be able to go to the SEC and show them, look, this is a strong claim. We've got the evidence. We've got emails. I have a client who got an award last year and he had made a lot of audio recordings where they were planning a scheme. The evidence is there. You know, if I can give something like that to the SEC, it makes it clear it's worthwhile to pursue the claim. So one of the main things I would say to the client is hurry up, like do your homework. We have to get to the SEC with something that's very, very strong, has a lot of detail, otherwise they won't act. But act pretty quickly because if you don't get there now, you know, it's quite possible that someone else might blow the whistle or if either the SEC or the DOJ were to open up an investigation, you don't want them to go to you because at that point, you're not really providing information that's voluntary. Jeff, if I could just weigh in real yeah, quick on, on this. Uh, you know, another aspect of this is sometimes the right answer for a potential client is you probably shouldn't blow the whistle. Um, so listening to your client and saying, okay, what is your circumstance? And, and understand that although the program is set up to allow for anonymity and confidentiality, what it can't do, and I say this to clients all the time, there's no men in black stick where I can put it to the, you know, your company's people and press the button and they'll forget that you've raised this issue. There's no, the SEC can do everything right and we can do everything right. And you can be anonymous, you know, till the cows come home, but there's no way that the company's not going to be able to figure out or, or may not be able to figure out what, who reported this. Mm -hmm. And so if you're saying to me, Sean, the only thing that is important to me is that you, I, you give me some assurances that I will never be outed. I have to tell them and counsel them, and I have cut many clients loose. If that's your main thing, I cannot give you that assurance, and I cannot sleep at night if I brought you on board and you know, under the assumption that you remain anonymous or confidential throughout the process, which you may you know, officially, formally, but if if you want to keep your job and you've got kids, I, I don't want to not be able to sleep because I'm worried that you got laid off because I guaranteed you some level of confidentiality that I cannot do. And so sometimes the the I think that the best decisions we make is to counsel potential clients. You know, there's no law that says you have to report this. Mm -hmm. It's probably good that you do. But understanding your circumstance, maybe you don't or maybe you wait until you've got another job and then come back to us and we'll help you through the process but right now it sounds to me like your priorities don't match up with what we think we should bring to the table look i want to get paid i want to bring the best cases possible but i can't do that at the expense of someone's personal well-being and and safety sometimes that's an issue I mean, I, I'm, I'm afraid this guy is crazy and he'll he'll kill me well then i don't want you to report you know i honestly i just i i don't um, but that's a big part of the counseling role that I didn't appreciate when I was on the other side. Yeah, I think this highlights the importance of hiring experienced counsel, right? I mean, <laughs> one of the things that Sean said that uh, resonates kind of very strongly with me, when you leave government and you go into private practice, you can expect certain things. Um, but there's also some surprises. And one of the most challenging things uh, when I went into private practice and remains is that in counseling clients, Many times it is not in their interest, consistent with their goals to report. And while that's satisfying because we're being good counsel, we now know that there is a crime being committed somewhere in the United States that we can't do anything about. And we have to wish the person well, but it hurts. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it is a unique challenge. And, and, and just to echo what Sean said, Jeb. Yeah. 
you know, when we speak about an act of retaliation, we often think in the U.S. of an act of retaliation in the workplace, like someone has lost their jobs. So I've had a few clients all around the world who blew the whistle about a violation of, of the FCPA. It was a U.S. firm that paid some sort of um, an amount to some other government in order to get work. And I you know, had a client in Asia and he felt that his employer was actually spying on him, that they were keeping track of everywhere he'd go, his family go. I mean, he's worried about his life. I've had some prospective clients call and say, if I hire you, uh, will I be able to live with you? Will you be able to guarantee my mm. personal uh, security? So people have a lot on the line. And I'm happy to say one of the neat aspects of this program is you don't have to be in the U.S. in in order to get an award. The SEC has given out a lot of awards to people um, who are outside the U.S. And what's so key about that is if there wasn't a way to blow the whistle without having to reveal your name, and if there wasn't a big financial reward, these people would never speak up. I uh, I appreciate the time that you guys have spent with me today. You know, but as Jason said, there's an opportunity for this program to do even better through a, a public-private partnership that's a little more akin to what's happening in the False Claims Act, but there's a really is a, a great army of experienced SEC whistleblower attorneys out there to help guide people. Uh, and certainly you three are, are at the top of the list of people that I turn to. And I really appreciate your friendship and guidance uh, over the last years. I just want to acknowledge all three of you for uh, really taking leadership role in our bar and moving these things forward and highlighting the opportunities that are available here for people who are facing these uh, concerns on a daily basis inside of corporate America that certainly didn't exist. When I was in corporate America prior to law school, certainly things would have been different for a lot of people uh, in the different areas that I was in. Uh, so all three of you, Jason, Jordan, Sean, thank you so much for your time today. Next week, we're going to dive back into the False Claims Act world. That'll happen next episode of Fraud in America. If you believe you've witnessed fraud against the government at your job or want to learn more about these important laws to combat fraud, visit fraudinamerica.com. On our website, you can find whistleblower lawyers, blogs from these expert attorneys, and more. You can also find a transcript of today's show, show notes, a way to contact our team, and a way to chip in to make sure we can keep bringing you the latest on fraud. This episode was edited and produced by Rachel Brooks, and our theme music is by Connor Chaos. A big thanks to our staff and researchers of Jeb White, James King, Emma Bass, Jackie DeMar, Kate Scanlon, Brian Markovitz, and Max Boltman. You can learn more about them at fraudinamerica.com slash team. Fraud in America is a project of Taxpayers Against Fraud Education Fund.